Welcome to Mindchat. My name is Philip Goff. I'm a philosopher who thinks consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. Hello, welcome to Mindchat. My name is Keith Frankish and I'm a philosopher who thinks that consciousness, at least in the way that Philip thinks of it, doesn't really exist at all. And we are absolutely delighted to be joined today by the legendary Frank Jackson. Welcome to Mindchat. Thank you very much, Philip. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'm sure most of the people listening know, know who Frank is, um, but I'll briefly introduce him. Frank um, Jackson uh, is an Australian analytic philosopher. He spent much of his career at the Australian National University, and he's currently emeritus professor in the School of Philosophy there. He is one of the most distinguished philosophers of our time, and he is the recipient of numerous honours and awards, which I won't embarrass him by uh, reciting. He's perhaps best known for his work in philosophy of mind and perception, and that's like, what we'll be concentrating on, but he has also done important work in many other areas in metaphysics and philosophical logic and philosophy of language and metaethics and much more. And I particularly recommend his 2000 book, From Metaphysics to Ethics, A Defense of Conceptual Analysis. I, it's a brilliant discussion of some central issues in analytic philosophy, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Frank, we're delighted to have you with us. Good to be here. Brilliant. So what we're going to do, so as, as Keith says, Frank's had huge influence in a really wide range of areas of philosophy. What we're primarily interested in in Mindchat is consciousness. So we're going to start with Frank's formulation of the knowledge argument against physicalism about consciousness, which is hugely influential, probably one of the most influential arguments in contemporary philosophy. Uh, introduce the argument, a bit of the history of how, how Frank came up with it and so on, the argument itself. Uh, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time, Keith and I, um, trying to persuade Frank. Oh, oh the, I, I should say that the remarkable, interesting thing about Frank is he came up with this hugely influential argument and then he changed his mind about it. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that, how he changed his mind, what he thinks about it now. And then Keith and I, from our very different perspectives, will maybe try and persuade persuade Keith, persuade Frank of... Um, of our view of the argument, and maybe go on to some some of the uh, other areas of, of philosophy that the Frank's worked on. I'm also a huge fan of from metaphysics to ethics. Um, I remember Frank when I was a graduate student coming and talking about that in Oxford, and it was had a big impact on me. Okay, so as always, if you're enjoying Mind Chat, the podcast with the lowest production values and the greatest philosophy, then please do subscribe to the channel, like the video, comment. Write us a five-star review, etc., etc., because it helps us get the videos out to a broader audience. Okay, do you want to take it away, Professor Frankish? <laughs> Great. Well, Frank, uh, I, I introduced Frank Jackson, the, the, the philosopher, briefly there, but I wondered if we could start by uh, learning a bit about Frank Jackson, the, the person. Uh, how did you first get into philosophy? Um, and was consciousness... Uh, something you all, always had an interest in from the start? Well, I was an undergraduate student in the 1960s in mathematics and science. 
and I did a bit of philosophy on the side and I read some Russell and my parents are both philosophers and I gradually got seduced away from mathematics into philosophy. Um, partly because I was fascinated by the subject and partly to be quite honest about it, the philosophers at the University of Melbourne seem to have more fun than the mathematicians. <laughs> the mathematicians were <laughs> very fine and distinguished people, but they were slightly introverted. And the philosophers had great parties. And also, I had some wonderful teachers. So I basically moved from mathematics to philosophy. Uh, but I'm very glad to have had the mathematics background. I think it's a, a great way to, to get into philosophy. Um, so that was that was the story about philosophy. When I was an undergraduate, the big issue at the University of Melbourne was physicalism versus the rest. So there was David Armstrong, who, as you all know, is a very fine philosopher. He's also a great lecturer, charismatic figure. He would stride into the lecture room actually wearing a gown. Back in the days when people wore gowns, he always wore his gown stride in, give these very impressive, beautifully prepared lectures. Um, and at seminars and discussions, it was often, you know, there were the physicalists in one corner and the anti-physicalists in the other corner. So it's all very fascinating. So that, that, that's how I got it. Exactly. That, that, that was the live um, issue. People weren't talking about the semantics of indicative conditional much. <laughs> So that, 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 that's the background. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, just a quick follow on that. It's fascinating. It's something that um, my friend Nigel Warburton has said to me, how much influence Australia has had in, in philosophy. It's a relatively small country in terms of population, but it's produced some of the um, most important philosophers of our time. Um, do you have any um, I, theories yourself about why that is? Well, here's a guess as an amateur. Uh, Remember, there was a time when Sweden produced a series of wonderful tennis players, and you said, how can this be? It's cold. Tennis is a lovely outdoor summer game. And what was the answer? Well, the answer was there was a small group of people, Borg most famously, but Wallander and the others. And I, however that started, how Borg got into philosophy, I I'm, tennis, I don't know. But it was a small group. Now, I think in the case of Australia, it was David Armstrong, Jack Smart, and John Passmore. They mm. were enormously good philosophers, and of course, Smart and Armstrong. And I was a colleague of Smart's for a year at Adelaide. Um, I think it was their influence. Um, and all, st all started tr from, from, from there. But you should ask a serious sociologist. But there's what I think as an amateur sociologist is the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to meet uh, both Jack Smart and David Armstrong at conferences when I was a graduate student. I remember Jack Smart laughing very, very loudly. I don't know if this was a thing he, when he was maybe older, but anyway, laughing very loudly in talks. And I managed to persuade him in his talk that uh, he was talking about how implausible qualia are and, um, the, uh, and presentism about time. And yeah. I, I, in my question, I said, well... Presentism, you've got general, you've got relativity inconsistent with it, but there's no specific scientific theory that's inconsistent with qualia. So aren't they on a better footing? And he said, maybe that's right. 
so I was quite pleased with that. Uh, yeah. That small concession. But um, and there's also there's a there's a there's a picture of me somewhere online kneeling in homage at the, the foot of David Armstrong, uh, trying to ask him a question. And uh, anyway, but uh, okay, well let's sort of start to move on to to the knowledge argument. But before we get to the argument itself, maybe I think the our viewers and listeners might be interested in the history of how you how you came up with the argument was it was it a eureka moment you jumped out of the bath and ran naked down the street or or something that came in multi- slowly and evolved in drafts or how, how did you come up with this ah uh, well i should emphasize that a lot of people have come up with a similar argument so in fact i've been told it's to be found in Locke. so that's going back hundreds of years um I think what a lot of us have been doing is struggling to find the very best way of expressing the fundamental intuition that lies behind it. Um, in my case, it was an historical accident. Uh, I was in the philosophy department of Monash. There was someone in the philosophy department, the psychology department of Monash who was interested in philosophy and had heard that there was a dualist in the philosophy department. Dualism was very much out of fashion in those days. I mean, it's still out of fashion, but not to the same extent. But back then, basically, you're a physicalist or a Catholic. <laughs> it was only the Catholics who didn't think that physicalism or something like physicalism was true. That, that's, that's a simplification, but not that much of a simplification. So this member of the psychology department had heard that there was actually a real life non-Catholic dualist in the philosophy department and he asked this non-Catholic dualist to give a talk about how on earth they could be a dualist given the overwhelming arguments of being a materialist or a physicalist. So I had to give it lunchtime talk. So I sat down and wrote a few things down and thought well this is the most powerful way of expressing the idea that there's something fundamentally wrong about physicalism. So I just gave it lunchtime talk um, and it went quite well. I mean, even the materialists, which most people in the audience, started worrying. You could see that for some of them, it was the first time they'd thought, gee, maybe this orthodoxy not quite so obviously right after all. So that went well. So I thought, oh, well, I'll write it out. And this is before I had a laptop and so on. In fact, laptops weren't around back then. So I wrote it out and mailed it very old-fashioned to the Philosophical Quarterly. Uh, and when you read the paper, it does read a tiny bit like a lunchtime talk. I mean, there's a certain chatty tone about it. And, of course, I point out that other people have said similar things, so it's not s- traditional, original scholarship of the classical kind. It's slightly informal. Uh, but despite that, the Philosophical Quarterly were nice enough to publish it. And I didn't give it much thought after that. You know, I'd said my little bit. There was my spruced up lunchtime talk with a few footnotes and so on and so forth and the story of Fred which I rather liked in fact I preferred the story of Fred to the Mary story and I just forgot about it and worked on other things and then suddenly what if I thought suddenly but gradually uh, over the years a lot of people read it and liked it and responded to it so there's a kind of snowball effect um, so that, that, that that's the story in, in brief and did you have any thoughts at that first moment that it would have that in- impact when maybe when people started having this good reaction at this lunchtime seminar? Did you have an inkling that this might might be a big hit or not really? 
I had an inkling that it might convert people. Partly because, well, for example, I a bit of an exchange with David Armstrong about it, and I could see that Armstrong was worried. And, of course, he right. was a hard, ma hard man to Good worry. <laughs> and I thought, right, so, so I had a bit of an inkling in that sense. Um, but I was a little bit surprised because there had been various versions of a similar line of thought in various places, and I was slightly surprised that my particular mm. – well, I don't want to criticise my own papers. Plenty of colleagues and friends do that for me. Uh, but I was slightly surprised that it got so much uh, attention, although I am prepared to say that I put the, the line of thought in a fairly forcible, accessible, accessible way. Katka Slutov is saying in the comments, in modern words, the knowledge argument went viral. Quite true. Hmm. Actually, just, just on the... Um, other versions of the knowledge argument. I always do feel a little bit sorry for the uh, my f former colleague and old friend, and I'm sure you know very well, uh, Howard Robinson, who in the very same year, 1982, published yep. his own version of the knowledge argument, but in terms of sounds rather than colours. Yep. And, I mean, you know, it's, he's, 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 also, he's in his book Matter and Sense, which is also very influential, but uh, somehow Mary and her colours... Uh, had had more of an impact. Maybe it's because we're a very visual-centric uh, culture. Anyway, I always like to mention that and footnote that when I talk about the knowledge argument. But yeah, I oh, know it's important. And other people, um, I think Timothy Sprigg may have heard a version. Um, Kripke had a version in terms of sound, which, as far as I know, is not published. Um, Timothy Sprigg also talked about consciousness in terms of what it's like to have experience before yeah. Nagel. And uh, one of the one was he perhaps the only person defending panpsychism back in the day. Do you think, Timothy Sprigg, do you know of anyone else who's... Um, no, but of course, the phrase, what is it like, goes back to a paper by Farrell called Experience, which uh, from memory is right. the 1930s, but I, I, I could... 1950, I think. 1950, oh, there you are. Only, only 20 years wrong, Keith. In which, in which he introduces the, uh, the question, what is it like to be a bat, yep. as an example of something we can know. It's a fascinating, it's a fantastic mm, paper. That's fascinating. It always goes back further than you think. Yep. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Oh, well, we, we, we've introduced the, we're introducing the argument. Let's, let's just, um, let's just set it out, shall we? I mean, there's, 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 there's two aspects to it. There's this story of this, about, about Mary. And then there's the, the argument proper that, that, um, that's built on the, on the back of the story. So could you just briefly, Tell us the story and then and then how the argument goes, please. Yes. We have someone called Mary who lives the early part of her life in a black and white room. A way to think about it is to think about late night movies. You know those black and white late night movies on TV? So, and of course, they're not really black and white. They're black and white in shades of grey. So think of her as living in one of those movies, like um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance is a black and white movie, rather good one. So she lives a life like that. Um, in that room, she gets wonderful lectures on physics, chemistry, neurobiology, embryology, the brain, she knows exactly how the brain processes information, governs our responses to the environment, but all in black and white. So that the lectures on her TV are 
black and white lectures, black and white TV. The books are black and white. Now, it seems clear that you could learn all the physical stuff there is to know that way. Uh, medical textbooks do have colored illustrations, but they're not essential. <laughs> they might help, but you don't have to have them. So the idea is you've got this wonderful picture of how things are physically, that is in every way discussed in the physical sciences. Uh, and of course, she knows in the course of these wonderful lectures, that people outside her room sometimes produce the word yellow when they see a thing called a ripe lemon. She knows that. And she knows about the light rays responsible and the vocal cord contractions that produce the word yellow and so on and so forth. Okay, that, that's the background. Okay. And then one day, the door to the room gets opened like that. She hops out and she sees things as colored. Now, there's a very strong intuition that she suddenly realizes there's a whole aspect of reality that's been hidden from her. Um, maybe what's been hidden from her is the kinds of experiences people have. Maybe what's been hidden is the kinds of properties on the surfaces of lemons. Maybe it's a bit of both, or maybe it's both. But in one way or another, it seems compelling that she suddenly discovers about a whole lot of properties she didn't know about before. But of course, she knew about all the properties that physicalists and materialists talk about. Irresistible conclusion, there are more properties than physicalists talk about. That's that 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 that's the line of line of thought, um, and although I no longer accept the argument, I do think it's one everyone has to respond to. I mean, physicalists naturally were anxious to reject the argument, and some of them said it makes some elementary silly mistake. I, I do think that's quite wrong. Uh, it's got to be addressed really seriously if you're a physicalist, as, as I now am. Uh, it's no use saying it makes some ele elementary mistake. You've got to take it really seriously. So the idea is that if the physicalists were right, then Mary's textbooks and black and white um, movies and so on could have told her everything there is to know about the world. That's about right. Television yep. Yep. And about the rest of the world. Um, but they failed to. So physicalism isn't true. I should say that I've always appreciated the fact that in this argument you... I think you, I think I imagine saying that you mentioned the open university, um, pointing out that the, that if, if, um, um, the open university would have to use color television if, yeah. um, if there was certain information that could own, that couldn't be conveyed in black and white. Well, someone who worked for the open university writing textbooks for them for 10 years, I always appreciated that little yeah. reference. I've, I've been teaching this argument for about 20 years now and, I actually find a lot of people misunderstand it. I think what goes on is because the 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 story's so vivid, people think, "Oh well, I understand the story, so I must get the argument." But the argument's maybe a little bit subtle. And mm -hmm. one one very common misunderstanding I've found from students, but also from some professional philosophers whose names will go unmentioned, but uh, some people think that the argument's supposed to be, well, if materialism is true and you can completely explain color, version, color vision in, in the terms of neuroscience. If that's all true, then how come blind people can't experience, don't experience colors when they read all that neuroscience? Uh, and that's, that's not quite the argument, is it? No. no. But the, a way of seeing has been taken seriously is his common ground. Perceptual experiences deliver information. 
We all know that. You don't have to do a philosophy course to know the perceptual experience of delivering information. That's why you look out the window to find out whether or not it's raining. <laughs> um, that's, that's clear. It's also clear that Mary has perceptual experience in new ones, ones she hadn't had before. That's also clear. That, and again, that's common ground. When that door gets opened, she has a whole new range of perceptual experiences. That, that's quite clear. Now, perceptual experience of delivering information, then she's having information delivered to her. That's clear. Now, now the crunch question for physical is, okay, if she's having information delivered, is it information which in some sense she already had, or is it new information? If it's new information, physicalism is false. If it's information she already had, physicalism is true. But the physicalist better tell us what the information is. Doesn't look to be the same. <laughs> it looks to be different. So the physicalist better have a story about Although the experiences are novel experiences, the information being delivered is in fact information Mary already had. That's the hard work. So when I said before, physicalists shouldn't just dismiss it. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names, but you two and those visiting this chat can name some names. There are some people who speak of it with almost derision. I think is a fair term to use. Uh, that's that's part of what they're missing. There's a compulsory question for them. What mm -hmm. information does Mary get, which is old information? And if it's old information, they better tell us what it is. Yeah, that, that. yeah that's very vivid putting it in terms of information, isn't it? I mean, it's so the idea is physical science, if materialism is true, physical science, neuroscience, chemistry, or whatever, is supposed to give us all the information about what's going on in the head. I, I, I have an analogy um, in my book, Galileo's Error, where I say it, it's like, you know, if you have the complete final theory of black holes, that's not going to turn you into a black hole, but you, you ought to have all the information about black holes. It ought to not be possible to learn some new fact about the essential nature of black holes. So if you then do go on to learn some new fact about black holes, well, that shows you didn't have the complete theory of black yeah. holes. So similarly, if, if, if Mary has all the neuroscience of color experience and that's the full story she, she shouldn't be able to learn anything new that's yeah that's yeah. the kind of mm -hmm. yeah i mean one, one way i've sometimes tried in teaching this is to is to make a comparison with um information about a place say paris now um suppose uh, the equivalent of mary has been learning about paris from books and and um uh, videos and so on and she has a exhaustive knowledge of Paris. She knows every centimetre, every millimetre of, of, of the place, which is, I think, a good analogy because it emphasises how much knowledge we're talking about here. She knows she knows Paris down, down to the millimetre. Uh, would she then learn anything new by actually visiting Paris? Um, and I, of course, she, setting aside the, experience, the, the nature of the experiences she would have, and whether because that takes us back into the knowledge argument, would you learn anything new about Paris itself? And I think it's, I think uh, it's fairly easy to get people to admit that that she wouldn't. I mean, she mm. she, she knows everything she's learned. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and that's that's the sort of comparison we're drawing. But I think that serves to emphasize as a it's useful in that it emphasizes that's the kind of knowledge we're assuming that Mary has. It's an astronomically uh, yeah. huge body of information she has. Their brain has. What is it? Eighty-six billion massively interconnected neurons, and she knows how every one of them um, works. Uh, 
So, yeah, well, so that's um, I, I, maybe that brings out both the, the nature of the of the um, of the uh, of the argument and also the, the 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 quantity of information involved. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so I think we've got hopefully got some grip on the argument. But I think for, for someone from my philosophical perspective, Frank, you're sort of a play the role of a tragic hero. You came up with this wonderful, influential, world-changing argument, and then you went and blummin' rejected it. So can you maybe start to tell us a little bit about that? Like, f- first, again, maybe a little bit of autobiography. Was it, was it a road to Damascus moment? Were you thrown off a horse by a blinding light, or what, what went on? Uh well, of course, I, I, I was surrounded by Australian materialists. Ah, uh, that's <laughs> um, the problem. That's the problem. Uh, uh, and particularly Armstrong. Uh, and remember, the Armstrong-Lewis argument for physicalism wasn't the unified science argument that, in fact, one of your contributors presented at the Christmas show. Um, oh. It was the causal argument. So Jack Smart used the unified science argument for arguing for the identity theory, uh, mind brain. Lewis and Armstrong were more on the causal side. So they stressed the causal role of mental states and how this meant that somehow the mental states had to be physical because all the causing was done by something physical, that line of thought. Um, now, in the original paper, I said, we better be epiphenomenalists. And, uh, you know, again, on the principle of doing up front, <laughs> don't pussyfoot around. Face up to the fact you've got to be an epiphenomenalist. And Should I we say what epiphenomenalist is, Ms. Just, just in case. Oh, well, well remember, remember, the time, remember the title. Oh, yeah. Remember the title of the paper is Epiphenomenal Qualia. And an epiphenomenalist says the qualia are there, all right, but they're causal byproducts. So they don't do any causing of behavior. So that, that, that's what I said, and I said, you might think this is hard to believe, but let me explain why it's not so bad. Um, as I said, I was surrounded by Australian materialists who spent a lot of time telling me it was so bad. And in the end, I conceded. And I still do think when I read some contemporary dualists, that they don't worry as much as they should about the spectre of every phenomenalism. Um, so... I became unhappy, but I couldn't see what was wrong with the argument. So basically, I didn't talk about it much. So people would nicely ask me to go to conferences and present the pro-knowledge argument side, and I would politely decline because I still thought the argument worked, but I had no idea what to say about the epiphenomenalism worry. So I used to say, thank you for asking me, but, you know. Um, And then I became converted to representationalism by people like, well, partly Armstrong, but Lycan and Michael Ty and Alex Byrne and so on. And then I thought I saw a way of responding to the argument. So then I got much happier. So what was the story? I got worried about the causal problem, the epiphenomenalism. That made me pull back from the argument. I didn't know what to say of a positive kind. Then I became converted to a kind of representationalism and said, ah, now I can see how to respond to the argument. So it's sort of a two-step process. And that last step, I finally felt able to write stuff about it. So I could then start publishing articles and agreeing to give talks on the subject, where beforehand I'd been declining to give talks on the subject. 
So just to get clear on the, the, the epiphenomenalism point, so the worry is you, you still believe that the brain states do everything, That's cause right. our behavior, cause us to scream and run away when we're in pain. But if the pain is not physical, as the knowledge argument supposedly proved, then there's nothing left for it to do. So it just sort of floats around and doesn't do anything and, and so on for other, that, other that, any that, other that, conscious state, yeah. That, that's exactly right. You, you, you put the worry very well. Um, now, of course, there are responses to the worry. You can say, uh, what's wrong with symmetric causal overdetermination? So why shouldn't it be both the case that the brain states do the causing and the quality do the causing, hand in hand? And, of course, it's hard to refute that. It's also slightly hard to believe it. <laughs> At least I found it hard to believe. And the other thing, of course, you can say is, um, why do we treat as sacrosanct the causal closure of the physical? Indeed, I know you talked about that in an earlier mind chat uh, session. So there are ways out. But, you know, sometimes you abandon a position of philosophy not because it's been absolutely buried once and for all, but you simply can't believe it. And you can see there are ways out, but somehow none of them really strike you as believable. So that, 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 that's the story. Could you say, just, oh, sorry, Keith, just before Keith comes in, could you maybe talk a little bit, I don't know whether this is what Keith was going to ask, but a little bit more about how you think the, this representationalist right. reply, how how that solves the worry of the knowledge argument for you. Well, maybe we can start with was, was, was the was the, the, the bridge that, that took mm. you to rejection of the knowledge argument, right? So that was, yeah. that was the view you became convinced of independently and then that showed you how to answer the knowledge the knowledge argument is that right uh so should i say something a bit about how i think yeah. about representationalism yes please what, what yeah maybe, what maybe, representationalism maybe and, and, what and, the view is yeah right. well what representationalists say in a loud clear voice or in vigorous prose on a piece of paper perceptual states represented the world is thus and so I'd say this in a loud, confident voice, and these days, thousands nod. <laughs> Very popular view. <laughs> and there's a few people who say, yes, the words sound good, but would you kindly explain to me exactly what they mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I approach it in a slightly different way, and this is, in fact, slightly different from what you'll find in the literature, some parts of literature. Um, Let's go back to something which is common knowledge to people, whether or not they've done a philosophy course. People who have perceptual experiences navigate the world much more successfully than those who don't. So if you want to get across the road without being killed, it's a good idea to have your eyes open. If you want to find out whether or not it's raining outside, take your earmuffs off. So... And also, people with perceptual experiences um, give much more accurate reports of the world around them. So if you write, to write down on a piece of paper what's going on, if they've got their eyes open, their earmuffs off, they'll do a much better job than they've got their hands over their eyes and their ears are blocked. Okay. We, everyone knows that. Now, there's only one credible explanation for this. It's that our internal states, and most likely, in fact, almost certainly our brain states, carry information about the environment. That, that must be the explanation. So we have states inside us which carry information. Now, 
the connection between those states and the perceptual experiences can hardly be an accident. The perceptual experiences enable this navigational ability and the reporting ability, and the internal states do the same thing, makes sense that that's just what perceptual experiences are, information-carrying states. Now, here's something else we know. How accurate our reports are, are a function of the phenomenology. If you go to the optometrist, in fact, I see Keith wearing glasses and I'm wearing glasses, and I suspect that Philip sometimes has to wear glasses, despite being so absurdly young. Philip, sometimes he wears glasses. Contact when, you, <laughs> when you go to the optometrist, you know you have to call out those letters on a chart? Typically, you've got a pretty good idea, good idea of how you've gone. What tells you how well you've done? The phenomenology. If it's fuzzy, uh-uh, I don't think I've done very well. If it's lovely and crisp, I've nailed it. I, d I don't even have to wait for the optometrist to tell me. Congratulations, Frank, you've got a perfect score. I know from the phenomenology that I've nailed it. And that's just one example. So what does this tell us? Perceptual experiences are internal states that carry information, and how good a job they're doing is tied to the phenomenology. We know that. This is all common knowledge. I mean, the story about the optometrist is common knowledge, and I could have given lots more. And I'm sure anyone visiting this program could think of examples them, themselves. So that suggests the interconnection between internal states carrying information, accuracy, navigation, and the phenomenology. How do you put that package together? What you do is you think of the phenomenology as a kind of access to the contents of the navigational states. Now, this is not the hard or thought theory. The idea isn't the consciousness of phenomenology comes from a relationship to the mental state. It's a story about the phenomenology coming from the access to the content. So phenomenology comes from a way of accessing the content. So the idea is the phenomenology is literally a kind of belief that the phenomenology is thus and so. And, 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 and that's the story. Now, what happens to Mary when she leaves the room is she acquires a new way of having beliefs about how her states represent things to be. So in the black and white room, she knows perfectly well that lemons have a surface with a distinctive physical property to do with reflectance profiles, which actually perhaps you should spell out for those visiting later on. But the yellow objects are unified by a certain kind of reflectance profile. She knows all about that. She can do a little chart. You know, in her black and white room, she can do a nice little chart show, ah, that's the reflectance profile that prompts the word yellow in the mouths of English speakers outside my room. She knows all that. When she leaves the room, what happens is she can get the same information, but gee, no need to with a chart, just look. <laughs> Lovely. I no longer need to do this complicated chart. I can just look. And that's the idea. I'll say a bit more than I'm sure you'll want to come back with questions and thoughts. But one way of thinking about it is like face recognition. Some people can't recognize faces. They know what goes on when other people recognize faces. And of course, they sometimes have beliefs that the person in front of them is the same as the person in front of them before. Perhaps they've got a distinctive scar. And the chance of two people with exactly that scar is zero. So it's the same person. But they don't ever have the experience of seeing someone as someone they've seen before. 
they suffer face blindness. Now you can imagine them saying, gee, I'd like to be cured. And maybe you can get cured, it's a, it's a brain problem. You can imagine them saying, ah, one day I'll, after my operation, I will suddenly see faces as faces I've seen before. My face blindness will be cured. I don't know what it's like. I can't imagine what it's like. Nimero Lewis sounding talk. But that, 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 that's the story. So Mary acquires the same information she had before, but in a new way. And when we say she doesn't know what it's like, here we're borrowing Lewis Nimero. What she lacks while in the room is an imaginative ability. But when she gets out, she'll have it. Thanks. That's 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 great. Um, I wonder if we could just just go back a, a little bit and just get a little clear about re representation representationalism because I um, I've I think this sometimes confuses people or they they interpret it in different ways because there are, there are there's a weak form of representationalism and a stronger form and. Um, I think a lot of people interpret representationalism in the weaker way, and I, uh, I'm, well, you can explain this, but I, uh, I think the way they think of rep mental representations is as something in their head that they're aware of, like a little picture, and they're aware of what the little picture in their heads is like, as it were, like the the, the colours and so on of the, of a painting, and they're also aware of what it represents in the world, and they sometimes think that what they're really first of all aware of immediately are the mental colors and uh, shapes on this, this little picture in their heads. And then they infer what's in the world from that, what it represents outside. And that would be, I think, a sort of weak representation is, but that's not the sort you're meaning, is it? And could, could you dispel that out for us? That's a bit better. No, than that, 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 it, it's absolutely right. The, the kind of representation of my life is an outward looking kind. Mm. Um, so what happens when, you're aware of how your perceptual experiences are representing to be. What you become aware of is how the world would have to be to be in accord with those experiences. So let, let's take a very simple example. Um, take the Heller illusion. Now, you will know what the Heller illusion is, but perhaps those visiting the program won't. So let me just remind you, the Heller illusion is just two vertical straight lines like that. And because they've got a fancy background, they look curved. And they really do look curved. It's not like the old straight stick in water looking curved or looking bent. Doesn't always look bent. <laughs> Looks like a straight stick in water <laughs> with one bit in one bit of water and one bit out of the water. But in something like the head illusion, the lines really are straight, but they really do look bent. And when you try and describe it, you say, look, it's bent. But of course, there's nothing bent there. There's nothing bent on the PowerPoint slide illustrating the illusion, there's nothing bent in your head. So where does the, <laughs> yet somehow bent's the right word. And there's no use saying, oh no, it's bent star. Where bent star is like bent, but not bent. No, no, it's not right. <laughs> bent's the only word to use. What, you're like curved is the only word to use it better. So why does that seem to you the only right word to use? Because that is how the lines would have to be to be as your visual system is representing it to be. So what you're acquainted with is how things would have to be, to be as your visual system says they are. That's the acquaintance. It's a kind of direct realist theory, except that acquaintance is not with the 
objects out there in the world. It's with how things would have to be. But how things would have to be is to do with how things are in your environment. So that, 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 that's the picture I like. And, so, and, and this, this, that would apply too to hallucinations, for example. Uh, if I hallucinate a little pink rabbit sitting over there, I'm, uh, there's a temptation to think, well, there isn't a pink rabbit over there. That's it's a hallucination, right? So there must be something like a kind of image of a pink rabbit in my head at the time. But that's not the idea either. It, the idea is that I'm, <laughs> well, how do we phrase it exactly? Uh, I, my visual system is presenting things, to, well, presenting is a, a dangerous metaphor, but it's presenting things to me. I'm, I'm reacting to the world as if there were a pink rabbit over there and there would have to be one for me to be reacting correctly. Something like that. Is that, is that how it goes? That, that, that's right. Um, sometimes I, 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 I try and put the point this way. Um, the world is full of structures that give information. I mean, petrol gauges, you know, mm -hmm. motor cars, an example. But, and they give information because they reliably co-vary what, what they're giving information about. But there's a sense in which they're not fully transparent. Um, if a dog looks at a petrol gauge, it won't make a discovery about how much petrol's left in the tank. Or if your car has, this is the empty end, but you have the mistaken impression that this is one of those cars where empty is down that end, then you get the wrong information. That is, you have to learn how to read petrol gauges. And that's the problem dogs have with petrol gauges because they haven't had the lesson on how to read them. Now, perceptual experiences give information, but you don't need a lesson in how to read them. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to have someone pulling you aside and saying, oh, here's the manual on how to read your perceptual experiences. So what's great about perceptual experiences is they deliver information, like petrol gauges, but in a transparent or fully accessible way. That's why they're so wonderfully valuable. That's why they're good for children never never been to school. That's why dogs and cats find them so valuable so it's transparent information that's it so what happens when the lines look curved or people have after images the information we delivered in the case of after images of course it's false information is transparent or immediately available and that's where you get the phenomenology phenomenology mm. is actually a reflection of that uh, but as a good physicalist the phenomenology isn't anything over and above that <laughs> there are no, there are no qualia so right. it's not right. the information and then the qualia stuck on top of them it's just the information that's, that's, itself that's, yeah. that's the, the key thing isn't it it's the, yeah. the information yeah. is the whole story yeah. so to that's take right. an after image which is a, a good example it's a good way of getting people to believe in qualia that you stare at a, at a, at a um uh, at a blue screen for a little while, and then you look at a white wall, and it suddenly appears yellow. You have an after image. Now, the, this, the, the yellowness seems real. I <laughs> think um, you know you seem to be acquainted with something that's yellow, but of course, there's no yellowness out there on the screen. And if, if we don't believe in quality, then there are no there's nothing yellow in our heads. So, but what we're what we're getting is information. Is is information in this case yeah. um, inaccurate information about. Yeah what the screen is like now this is i think this is absolutely right of course but it is a kind of hard pill to swallow isn't it because it seems i mean because after all the information here is just the sort of thing again that mary could have got it's the sort of thing that doesn't require doesn't have to be rendered in this sort of color medium um so how do we how do we sweeten that pill for people a little bit is, do you have any thoughts about that well, I think face blindness helps a bit um, mm -hmm. because the example of face blindness 
reminds us that sometimes, well, let me take, let me take a step back. The thing about face recognition is that people latch on to similarity patterns. Um, and they latch on to similarity patterns, but not in virtue of wherein the similarity lies. They don't know, in fact. I mean, they know it's got something to do with the face. <laughs> but you have to have high-powered researchers at MIT or Caltech, wherever it is, <laughs> Um, who work on face recognition, they can tell you just what the visual system is doing. But you and I just see the face as one we've seen before. And it, wherein lies the structure which is doing it, you don't know. Um, and the same thing, of course, applies to people who um, are illiterate and recognize sentences as being grammatical or non-grammatical. They pick up the pattern, but they haven't got a clue about, you know, well, they can't say it's subject-verb failure or subject-verb agreement. But, but nevertheless, they simply hear the sentences as being grammatical or non-grammatical. And we see faces being alike or not alike. Um, so there's a recognitional capacity towards seeing things falling in patterns. Now, I think what happens in colour vision, uh, and this means school evolutionary sense, as lots of people have said, the point of colour vision is to group things together and group things apart in ways that are conducive to survival. So that the, the dangerous toadstools stand out from the okay toadstools. The ripe fruit, the, the, the ripe oranges, a nice orangey color, as opposed to those pesky green ones that give you a stomachache, and so on and so forth. So color vision is a huge exercise in classifying and putting apart and putting together things. Um, but exactly what property underlies the classification is hidden to you. Uh, in fact, we now know it's to do with reflectance profiles, but the ordinary citizen looking out the window. <laughs> so colour vision is about acquiring recognitional capacity. Now, recognitional capacities aren't getting new information. They're acquiring new abilities. So once you have that picture of what's going on, you can see how Lewis and Nemro might have been right when they said, Mary doesn't get any new propositional knowledge when she leaves the black and white room. She acquires an ability she didn't have before. Now, as I've said in print, search me how you could have seen that Lewis and Nimero might have been right, absent the story I've told about representationalism and classification and recognizing similarities and differences without knowing what underlies them. Search me how you could have seen that they might have been right without all that stuff. But nevertheless, I think they might have been right. But that—that's that, the story. I think that's that's really sorry, sorry. That's really, really quite vivid analogy, actually, isn't it? I think you said before that the physicalist has to say Mary isn't getting new information; she's only getting old information. But the point is, so the relevant information here is about the similarity space of colours. She already knew all that information, but what she now has is she. It's the sort of is it the kind of speed of it speed of it because yeah. it's it's in it, the information is now built into her visual experience. She doesn't have yeah. to look at her color charts or something. She just it's all fed to her instantly. So that's why the, I guess the the analogy to face recognition is is, is a really nice one. Um, that, 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 that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. Let me just give uh, one more example, then I'll stop talking because you guys want to say stuff. Here, here's one more little story. We're which here I think to hear is you. Illuminating. Um, I currently know that my knees are bent under the table by proprioception. <laughs> um, there are other ways of knowing your knees are bent. 
you might see them reflected in a mirror. And in fact, someone who's got a spinal block, the only way they can know that their knees are bent by having a look in a mirror because they've lost that sense. Okay, so there's a phenomenological difference between seeing your knees bent in a mirror and the normal way of doing it, the way I'm using right now, <laughs> the proprioception way. That's a phenomenological difference. But the phenomenological difference is not because there's a qualia difference as such. It's because of the way you're accessing. It's the very same information that my knees are bent. Two ways of accessing it. And the proprioception way is the way which is most like the way we access similarities and differences in the case of colored surfaces. So that's another way of, of looking at it. That's really nice. So I think, okay, so hopefully we've got an idea of the knowledge argument. Frank's response to it now, he no longer thinks it works. So what we're going to do now is is maybe get a little bit debatey or perhaps in a, in a friendly way. So Keith's going to, uh, oh, you know, or, or maybe... No, I just, maybe. I just wanted to, oh, to just get... Oh, sorry. Just, just spell out the last step of that. Oh, yeah. So we've sorry, got to... Ex Keith. I mean, I think Frank's already done this really, but how... How then does that, that explain our, intu our in the intuition we have in in in, in the in the Mary? Because one thing that the Mary argument certainly succeeds in doing is eliciting this very strong intuition that there's something Mary wouldn't know. There's something she's missing. Mm. And what? Uh, um, so how do we? How does this story explain? It? I mean, it's implicit in what you just said, but could you just spell that out for us? Um, what's the the representationist account of what changes for Mary when she gets when she when she opens the the dawn sees the the uh, the vivid oh. colors of the world. What what happens is um, take the knees example. Mm -hmm. The way I know that my knees are bent now, I have a what I might call a non-derived belief. Doesn't come from any other belief of mine. I just believe my knees are bent. When I see my knees bent in a mirror, I've got a derived belief because I believe my knees are bent, but it derives from my belief that it's an image in the mirror, which is indeed of my knees. So in the proprioception case, it's a non-derived belief. Now, what happens in Mary's case is when she leaves the room, she acquires a non-derived belief that the lemons are strikingly alike and different from the oranges and that the pink things are between the white and the red things and the green and the red things are really very far apart. And the yellow is a bit near the white, but a hell of a long way from the black. And so this is all non-derived beliefs, though. They're not derived from some other belief she has. She just has that belief, but it's a belief about what her visual system is saying about how the world is. And that's, that's what happens. In the black and white room, of course, she has plenty of derived beliefs. She knows perfectly well that things called white by people outside the room, or actually, sorry, she has white and black in the room. Let's do red and green. She knows perfectly well that things outside the room, which they call red, are different from things outside the room people call green in a distinctive way. She no doubt knows more than we do about the light wave explanation for this. But it's a derived belief. She's done a little chart on a piece of paper and said, ah, oh, they're differently different and gee that's the same chart that prompts the word red in people and that chart prompts the word green she knows all that more than we know when she leaves the room suddenly she, she acquires a non-derived belief 
that the red things are very different from the green ones. That's the idea. So it's the it's the it's old information, but it's being repackaged in a very very different way for her and presented to her with a uh, an immediacy uh, right. that it couldn't possibly have had before. So right. I mean, something is very different. Um, uh, her access to this information is suddenly very very different indeed. But it's that's the same right. old and, information. That's right, and it goes along with the field. One one more analogy. And then I must stop and give you guys more time. But think what happens to you learn a foreign language. <laughs> you know, there's the early bit where the agonizing bit of working out whether the sentences are grammatical. And then mm. there's a wonderful moment where you no longer have to do the agonizing bit. <laughs> they just sound grammatical. We haven't learned anything more about the sentences, <laughs> but there's a very distinctive difference. Okay. Yeah, someone who's been struggling to learn Greek for for, for some years, I can I can really relate to that example. <laughs> Okay, so I hope we. I think that's really very clear now. That's that's re really clarified it for me as well, actually. So, so what we're going to do now is Keith's going to spend twenty minutes or so discussing his perspective on these views, or or or, or, or qu qu questioning Frank in ways he's interested in. Then <laughs> I'll spend twenty minutes. And oh yeah, I should say I am. I am hoping to make history on Mind Chat tonight. I am hoping after all these years, I can persuade Frank. Jackson to accept the knowledge <laughs> argument again. I don't know whether that's too ambitious, but I'm I'm gonna have a go. Okay, uh, and then and then after that we'll um, have some audience questions if if we have a little bit of time left. So Keith, okay. where, where do you? The, the, well, the, the, the chair is yours for twenty minutes. Well, I, Take it away. <laughs> thank you, Philip. Well, usually at this point I try to persuade our guests to 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 um, adopt the, the position that. That I've labelled illusionism. It's not a position that I that I came up with. It's been around for for some time. Um, but in this case, I I I I'm Frank will correct me, but I don't think I, I have to do any persuading. I think that this view is <laughs> the view that I that I, I, I labelled illusionism. And what I should really do is apologise to Frank for not um, uh, stressing uh, the extent to which he's a pioneer of this view. Um, but let's let's. To get that clear first. Are you happy to be <laughs> to be to be um, to have this label? Uh, you I mean, you have indeed written this for the guest. You, you, you always say mind and illusion. You're illusionist. Uh, yes. The, the short answer is is yes. Um, remember, I once was a, a card carrying sense datum theorist mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the you know old fashioned you know the 1920s 1930s debates in the Australian society about sense data. <laughs> I was the sense datum person, um, you know, in spirit. Of course, I wasn't actually there. I was, wasn't alive. Um, and once you move away from sense data, you're very sympathetic to the talk of illusion because as a sense datum theorist, you think that when you see those curved lines in the header illusion, in some sense, there's something curved in your visual field. And these pesky people who are adverbialists or some sort of behaviorists are just denying the obvious fact that there's something curved. It's mentally in your visual field, not in physical reality, but let's not pussyfoot around. It's curved. Uh, once you say that's got to be wrong, <laughs> Dennett and others were right years ago when they said the one thing you've got to say is nothing's curved in these examples. Then, of course, there's got to be an extent of illusion because <laughs> it damn well looks as if there's something curved. <laughs> so what do you say? You say, I'm in a state which by its very nature says, 
oh, it's curved. It's curved. It's curved. Keeps on pushing that view on you. Yeah. And that's what you're responding to. So, of course, I'm happy with the illusions in, in, in that sense. Um, but, of course, there's no denial of consciousness. So yeah. Galen's torsion should not be upset. Absolutely. It's, the curviness is still there, Galen. It's just not quite what I might have thought it was. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I, I, one of the, the disadvantages of the label is that people think that people such as Dennett and yeah. myself and indeed you are denying the existence of consciousness. We're not. We're saying consciousness uh, isn't what you might think it is. Yeah. It isn't constituted by by sense data or, or qualia, uh, which I, I kind of like to think of qualia as, sort of unemployed sense data. I mean, sense yeah. data used to be these things that, that actually did some work in representing the world, but yeah. a lot of modern qualia theorists are quite happy to talk about informational processes that operate independently of the qualia, but the qualia yeah. still hang around just, just yeah. for the fun of it. And so they're unemployed sense data. But if, you, if you're not going to go be a full-blown yeah. you know, head-banging sense data theorist, then I just get, just get rid of them altogether, I think, and just go purely representation. This seems to me the obvious way to go. And then the interesting question is about the nature of the, the format of the representations and so on. And we can get into some really interesting evolutionary um, yeah. ideas about, you know, why information, why our sensory systems are packaging this, in, or how they're packaging this information and why they're packaging in this way and how they're creating this illusion, how they're giving us the sense that there really is something curved there or that there really is a, 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 a the surface out there really is yellow when there's an afterimage. And, and of course, there may be very, very interesting and compelling evolutionary story to tell about why our perceptual systems are inflexible in that way. Um, yeah. it's, it's, we, we, it's no good. Our, uh, these are for systems for rapid online behavioral control. They're not for reflective thinking. and they, they, we don't, It wouldn't be good if they were easily penetrable, um, if we could easily doubt, them, doubt their, 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 their veridicality. Um, well, so, yeah. I, I, so, and I should say that, that I, I, I mentioned to you, you, you have a paper called Mind and Illusion, which is indeed about, um, and, and you actually have a, a, a way of characterizing this the, the, the nature of the illusion. It's the illusion is mistaking um, an um, an intentional property, an informational property for an intrinsic property. Is, is, have I got that right? Is that uh, in the case of colour? I think it, it, it's slightly tricky. But the okay. fundamental thought is we mustn't mistake uh, an intentional property for an instantiated property. For an instantiated. But it's but it's, it's complicated in the case of colour because. When you see things as coloured, as well as seeing them as alike and unlike in a striking way, uh, there's also a sense in which you think it's all very well talking about relationships of similarity and dissimilarity in the colours and brightness and darkness and hue and saturation, all the stuff that colour photographers talk about. There's something else as well. There's the intrinsic things. <laughs> which stand in those relations, and there's something else. And I think that is an illusion. So I think there's a second illusion. In the case of colour, uh, I think there's, it's not just that, gee, red and green are very different, and red's more like orange than green is. All that stuff. Put all that stuff together, and this is what's behind inverted spectrum arguments and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's still the sense over and above that, there's something extra. And now I think that's an illusion. 
Right. So in the case of colour, there's a sort of double illusion. Right. And in some moods, I say this double illusion means we should be sympathetic to illuminators about colour. There aren't really colours. There are things hellishly like colours. And other moods, and I'm feeling more like, gee, more, I say, that's ridiculous. Of course there are colours. It's just that one finds it tempting to have this extra bully, even if you're a card-carrying representationalist, to think that there's an extra bit of representation. That extra bit's actually a mistake. Um, it's all a matter of similarities and differences between surfaces. So but what, 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 on both views, though, the idea that, 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 there's this, that there is this intrinsic bit behind all the patterns of similarity and differences that there that somehow um uh, uh i guess grounds those similarities and differences but um that we have to we have to deny the existence of that thing that's right yeah, yeah. that's right so that's right. it's it's eliminativist about um well it, we, we we could either say it's eliminativist about colors as qualities of things in the world or eliminativist about Colour quality, or limited is it about both? If we, it's not quite clear whether. Yes, well, we ah, just, well what you can say in the case of colour perception is, um, if your representation is, of course, the extent to which you're under an illusion depends on how much things correspond to how you're representing them to be. Mm -hmm. You might say, in the case of colour, uh, I'm a card kind representationalist, but unfortunately, the representation in the case of colour gets a hell of a lot right, but not quite everything. It goes a bit too far. Yeah. It doesn't just represent this. It does represent this highly complicated, interesting relationship between surfaces. But actually, it says something else as well. And this last little bit's a mistake. Right, right. It says there's I, an extra property over and above that. And that last bit's a mistake. But we, we could live with the fact that, mm -hmm. of course, we want most, most representation to be accurate. Otherwise, we could mm -hmm. navigate the world successfully. But you can live with a bit of inaccuracy, and, and that 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 it. And there's a possibility, of course, that that misrepresentation might itself be adaptive. And um, once yeah. we maybe well, there's a sort of caricaturing. Yeah. I mean, caricatures can often yeah. be yeah. more informative than than than, than yeah. um, realistic portraits. Yeah. And maybe in caricaturing in, in sort of giving, as it were, colours this sort of extra, yeah. extra potency, this extra seemingly ineffable quality to them that makes them a little bit more potent for us and yeah that's adaptive yeah. that's useful um we want think nature wants us to be struck by the colors of things because they're important and significant oh, well um that's 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 great i mean i think i i don't have a lot of persuading <laughs> i think or any persuading to to try to do here maybe one thing i could mention though is is it's something that's always that's always interesting i mean I've, in your right back in your 1990s, uh, 1977 book Perception, which in which you argued for sense statement theory, which was one of the first monographs I read before I actually studied philosophy, and I really like that book. It's fantastic, beautifully argued, and it really impressed me with what you could do with with a philosophic with, with the philosophical argumentation. And I remember reading and thinking, "Wow, I wish I could do this." Um, but one thing you argued against in that book, and I think you'd still um, argue against is a, is a view of perception as a, what's called the adverbial mm. view of perception. Um, and I always had a little bit of a soft spot for that view. Could you could you tell us what it what it is, please, and why you think it's wrong? Well, the adverbial theory was, of course, an attempt to avoid sense data. <laughs> 
So instead of saying in perceptual experiences, you sound in a kind of subject-object relationship where you've got a subject who is aware of uh, an object with certain properties, and it's the properties of the object which determine the nature of the perceptual experience. So when something looks round, you're in a relationship to something that is in fact round. So the roundiness comes from the object. Now, a verbalist, I think understandably, wanted to avoid this, particularly when they thought about hallucinations. They wanted to say, Let, let's be realistic, there's no object there. <laughs> so we better have some other story to tell about where the, the phenomenology comes from. It doesn't come from properties of an object because there's no object with those properties. Let's, and of course, I valiantly argued against that, but as I now think mistakenly. Um, so the adverbial theory was an attempt to avoid that 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 property. Uh, the problem is that when you describe perceptual experiences, thinking phenomenologically, you do end up by describing putative objects. I mean, this is the point known as diaphanousness or transparency, and it's controversial exactly how to state it and all sorts of ins and outs and details. But the fundamental thought, which is perhaps most clearly expressed by G. Moore and Gil Harmon, is that when you try and describe the phenomenology of perceptual experience, you do end up by describing putatively what your case of vision looking at. <laughs> the greenness is the greenness of the leaves, as Gil says, talking about the looking at a tree. Um, and you've got to respond to that. And mm -hmm. it's hard to see how the adverbal theorist does that, uh, mm -hmm. does respond to that fact. Now, that's not how I put the objection in the book, because, of course, I was a card-carrying sense-datum theorist back then. Um, the way I put it in the book was, look, you don't sense greenly. You sense greenly, a distance away, moving in the wind, tree-like, off to the left, about to be chopped down by someone with an axe. <laughs> and by the time you put all these adverbial modifications, I call it the many-property problem, Something's gone crazily wrong because basically you're clustering all the adverbs around a single object. Oh, it's a sense datum, I said. That's what right. I say in the book. Of course, now what I say is, no, it's how you're representing things to be. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, I take the sense data out, <laughs> cross the sense data out, and put in how things are being represented to be. Mm -hmm. That does the job sense data. Right. Right. But it does seem to be actually quite quite close to the, the adverbial approach. It's to do with how we are taking the world to be. We are taking it to be um, yeah. tree with the wind leaning this way, whatever, this way. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's, once you've got rid of the object, it seems you are much closer to the adverbial uh, approach. It's to do with how you are responding to the world, how you are taking the world, uh, rather than uh, uh, there being something that you are actually encountering either in the world or in your in your in your mind so yes i wouldn't I disagree with that although no. i think that's you're being extremely nice to the adverbial theory you're rewriting the adverbial theory <laughs> in a way which makes it much more palatable oh, right. <laughs> well i i think we need to to, to to make some sort of move a bit rather like that though to get over because this this intuition that you know we are directly accounted with the curve, something curved in the illusion, the, something yellow in the 
on the wall in the after image case. We, we well, need to, we need to, to give some, we have to have some metaphor, some, some way of talking that helps people to accept um, the, uh, the unreality of that thing. And I think, I think an adverbial approach helps, but I'm not sure. You know, that, 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 that may well be right. Um, I've always thought the talk about transparency mm. might help the same way. Because mm. ask people, what would it be like to be, remember the point of these informational states is that the information is available to you. Mm -hmm. What would it be like to have a state which not only carried certain information, but mm -hmm. its very nature told you what the information was? I mean, wouldn't, it's worth a million dollars. You don't have to know how to read these states. Mm -hmm. They just tell you. Now, what would it be like to be in a state which by itself said, there's mm -hmm. something round in front of me. Well, mm -hmm. how could it do that in and of itself without it seeming to you that you're confronted with something round? If you're confronted with something square, and had to say, whatever it looks to be square, there's something round nearby, that would, of course, mm -hmm. be non-transparent. You'd be having a derived belief based on something else. So I've sometimes thought that talking of transparency, or sometimes said, imagine what it would be like to be in a state which by its own nature urged on you a certain mm -hmm. view about how mm -hmm. things are, not derivatively, it just said, just go with the force. Now, remember the great thing in Star Wars? <laughs> use the force. <laughs> the idea of using the force is you don't use something else. Remember the great moment in the Star Wars film? He turns the computer off and just goes with the force. It's Alec Guinness's voice, use the force. <laughs> that, that, that's the idea. If you just use the force, that is, it's the very state you're in which says, it's something round there. Then mm -hmm. Isn't that going to be awfully like feeling you're acquainted with something round? That, it, 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 it is. And I, I like that idea because it's the, it, it's it's about how the world is impacting upon yeah. you and how you are reacting yeah. to it. And it's in that yeah. dynamic that the whole thing is generated. And yeah. I, 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 we really need to get away from this this act object view. I think because it's it's um, even though you you can you you know you can keep that way of talking on a representation of you. I think it's. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, it's an unhelpful strategy. I, we, 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 I, I like the idea of the force. It's yes, that's the, the world is continually forcing itself upon us, and that's our, our perceptual systems are designed to make to force the world upon us. That's what that's what they're for. And once you start thinking in that way, of course, then worries about hallucinations and non-veridical cases become much less um, uh, troubling because yeah, the world is still forcing itself upon you. Um, yeah. It's forcing upon you in a way that's that's not appropriate, but it's still doing it just as vividly and powerfully as it ever did. And um, I think that's so. You know, the, 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 in the afterimage case, the world is forcing its uh, your, your perceptual systems are forcing the world upon you in a in a in a in a yellow way, yeah. um, and uh, because of the uh, and the fatigue to your retina, it's 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 not appropriate anymore. So yeah, I really like that. I might buy that, that analogy of the force. Really like that. So I, 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 maybe I should uh, I should wind up and hand over to Philip here because he's got a lot. To, he's got a lot to do now. Um, a big task on his hands, Philip. Uh, are you up to it? Are you going to rise to the challenge? Oh, I've got lots to say. Lots to say. Lots to say. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Right. Well. Um, so yeah, we're gonna have my 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 attempts to try and persuade Frank Jackson to embrace the knowledge argument. Actually, I've done this before. I was actually early in my career. I was a postdoctoral research fellow at the Australian uh, 
National University and I went asked Frank if I could come and speak to him about these matters. And I have to say, Frank, you were incredibly generous with your time. I think we spoke about two and a half hours or something and uh, uh, very, very generous with your time. But I didn't, I wasn't successful then. It might not be now. But anyway, um, yeah, so I'm actually, I'm actually currently working on a little paper developing, uh, defending a sort of modified version of a quite simple modification to the knowledge argument or maybe a sort of emphasis, a different emphasis. And what I think we need to, focus on is Mary's curiosity, right? So it's plausible, I think, that uh, before when, when she's in her black and white room, Mary might have been curious about what it's, what it's like. To, oh, I wonder what it's like to see red. And then she gets out and she sees red. She goes, ah, that's, that's what it's like to see red, right? So, so I think that's a very natural thought. And it's hard to see, you, you very nicely described your, your own view of the matter now. It's hard to see how you can make sense of that because as you as we've made quite clear, as you made quite clear, she doesn't gain any new information, right? Colours are essentially defined for you in terms of this uh, similarity space. Um, and she already knew all that information. Okay, she gets it a bit quicker now, a lot quicker, but she already knew all the information. So so it seems we can't make sense of the idea that she could have her curiosity satisfied. To have your curiosity satisfied, you need to learn some new information. So maybe this can really put a bit more pressure, rather than just talking about knowledge, a bit more pressure on the idea that she gets new information with this idea that her curiosity could be satisfied. Know what, you thought, what your thoughts are on that? Um, I've been in this game long enough <laughs> to know what's likely by way of persuasion or not persuasion uh, and indeed i remember with uh, with pleasure those conversations many years ago um but let me just say what i say in response i'm not expecting to convince you or indeed i'm not expecting to convince Gerdon strawson if it comes to that uh, but here's what I say. Um, Oliver Sacks suffered from face blindness. And as you might imagine, it's actually rather embarrassing because you meet people you really know very well and get their names wrong. Um, and he would very much like not to have suffered from it. And you can imagine that there might have been an operation available to cure him. So before he had the operation, he would say to himself, gee, I want to have this operation. But he'd also say to himself, what's it going to be like to recognize faces? And it seems that he, I mean, the phrase what is it like is a bit tricky. Sometimes it can just mean what properties does something have? And of course, he knows what properties the new state he's going to enter it to her, wonderfully valuable for it. That's why he's paying for the operation. But of course, what it is like could also be, and this is what Nemero and Lewis reminded us, it also refer to a kind of imaginative ability. And he can't imagine what it would be like. Um, he's sitting in his room waiting for the operation and thinks something really good's going to happen when I wake up from the anaesthetic. Uh, and I know what it's like in the sense of I know what capacity it's going to give to me and all the things I can do and the beliefs are going to be generated by my new capacity. But I can't actually imagine it. But, but of course, because I could recognize shapes, you know, he wasn't shape blind. 
he knew what was going to happen is a certain kind of ah uh, ah uh, thing would happen when he saw people well when i see your faces right now i've seen them on mind chat before i saw right that's keith there's philip <laughs> just like that um so he knows something like that's going to happen but he can't actually sum it up in his mind so that's the sense and this is just really what lewis and nemero said and as i said before my complaint about what they said in response to knowledge argument is that i couldn't possibly see how you could believe it absent all the representational background uh so that that that's the 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 the, the short answer um let me give one more analogy i can't waggle my ears could either of you waggle your ears some people can not only can't i waggle my ears i can't even imagine what it would be like to try and waggle my ears you know i can think waggle ears loud and, but of course nothing happens but also that's not trying to waggle your ears anyway that's saying to yourself over and again waggle ears which is uttering words but not um but i can't even imagine what it would be like but if someone does into my brain so i become one of the people who can waggle their ears I'll immediately recognize it. So I didn't know what it was like beforehand, but suddenly I'll recognize, ah, of course, I'll know exactly what's going on. I'm, ah, I'm trying and succeeding in waggling my ears. So that, that that's the story. Now, I, I, I know the response, so perhaps I'll be going fair, Philip should make it. People will say, well, this is all very well. Yes, there is something right about all this, but it lacks the true vividness and stuff about color and uh, so that's a nice story well, but it doesn't really meet the worry I, I i know what will happen and then we'll sort of agree to disagree but sorry philip <laughs> well just try once and then I, I i i'm not i'm not optimistic about persuading you, but but would you just focus on the curiosity stuff i mean would you would your if i suddenly was able to waggle my ears would my curiosity be satisfied doesn't what do you think well what do you think do you think your curiosity would be satisfied well i think i think what will happen is you'd immediately recognize it uh, and that's what I think mm. we imagine an example of Oliver Sacks, although he can't imagine what it would be like to recognize faces, when he wakes up and for the first time mm. recognizes the face, he'll know right away that's what it is. And yeah. I think the same thing physicalists have to say, and it's plausible, same thing about Mary. When she leaves the room and suddenly sees yellow objects as strikingly alike and red objects as strikingly alike mm. but different from the yellow ones, she will say, ah, I couldn't imagine what that was like beforehand, but I immediately recognize it. Imagine. I don't need a tutorial. I recognize immediately that that's exactly the state I'm in. Mm. That's what I think will happen. It's again like learning, learn, learning when you learn a new language, you don't know what it's going to be like in one sense to hear those Chinese sentences. Actually, I'm looking at Keith. I assume it was Greek to English in your case. I mean, mm. I'm just guessing it. <laughs> there was a stage when you, you knew which English sentence was grammatical but they didn't sort of sound automatically grammatical. Now, when the first time they did, although you couldn't imagine what it would be like beforehand, you immediately recognized what had happened. Immediately, ah, done it. I'm almost on the road to being genuinely bilingual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Of course, um, just, I'd say, I'd, I'd just, just jump in just with a little point that, of course, actually in, in, in reality, of course, it wouldn't be immediate. I mean, there would be a long process of having to train up a perceptual yeah. system to, to, to appreciate color vision. There's a wonderful um, uh, description of 
of how disappointing, in fact, this sort of thing would, would be in reality. And, and Nick Humphreys, um, I think yeah. it's in his book Soul Dust, in which he describes uh, a woman who had, uh, had uh, I think she'd had severe cataracts, uh, and she'd been effectively blind all her life, and she'd had an operation to remove them at some point, and she expected to suddenly enter this wonderful world of... of, of, of uh, she, she'd read a, she, she read a lot of poetry and so on, and she had this huge expectations of how wonderful the visual world would be when she encountered it. And it wasn't, it was completely disappointing. And because she couldn't make any sense of it, it was just a, it, it didn't come to her with wonderful clarity and distinctness and separateness and all these similar patterns of similarity and difference weren't immediately presented to her. She just had sort of confusion of visual noise. And in fact, she, she found it so distressing that uh, she actually went, put on her, dark glasses again and, and effectively went back to being to the blind world that she could handle. So, um, I mean, that doesn't alter the philosophical point at all, but it, it is worth bearing in mind that, that these things take time to be trained up, these systems. Um, no, no, uh, I, 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 absolutely. And I think you're right, though, philosophically, I mean, it's fascinating, but it's mm -hmm. neuroscience. And of course, the Churchlands think it's philosophically, sometimes they write as if it really mattered that if Mary, when Mary left the room, it wouldn't be oh, like, it is for you and me. I, I must confess, I think it's fine in the thought experiment to pretend. Oh, I, I think I, I, as a thought experiment, I think it is. Yeah. But it's it's but, it's worth. But what I was going to add was that what, what's nice about the example of Fred. Remember, Fred is the mm. person who just sees one more color. I think it's probably neuroscientifically plausible. I mean, some mm. people can see more colors than we can. Um, that if an operation was done into that Fred's our visual system, to make it like Fred, so Fred, we could see one more hue. It'd be much less distressing than the kind of example you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. it's really quite plausible, neuro, you have to ask a neuroscientist, but quite plausible that we'd suddenly see this extra hue, mm -hmm. which we'd never seen before. And that wouldn't be terribly disruptive. And if you want to say, gee, this is exciting, you'd say beforehand, what would be like to see one more hue? Mm -hmm. One mm -hmm. extra totally new, new colour? You'd be really quite excited about that. And when it happened, uh, what physicalists have to say is you'd acquire a new recognitional capacity. But okay, no. And I think I, I mean I, I I agree with you that I think philosophically it's 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 not too significant. Though I, at the same time, I do think it's not just a matter of having this new perceptual capacity. It's a matter of being able to use that information. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not just that it's sort of given to you and there you have it. Something you know, you've got a new source of information, but you've got to learn to use that new source of information for it to have significance for you to incorporate it into the way you react to the world. And it's not clear to me that that even in a philosophical thought experiment that can just be given to you like that. I mean, imagine well, we can imagine anything being given to us, but the, the, the mere perceptual adjustment wouldn't give us the whole reactive adjustment. Uh, yeah. It wouldn't incorporate yeah. into our learning, so that might be significant, perhaps. But yeah. anyway, I don't want to push what it's Philip's talk. It's Philip's. Talk. Mm -hmm taking my time frankish um yeah so yeah i always feel a bit sorry for fred i wonder if he's jealous of mary mary got so much more famous than him but um but anyway let, let me let me try a different tack um i want to talk maybe a little bit more about the the physicalism you now embrace um which i th which if i may say rather in my view rather radical form of physicalism you've gone from anti-physicalist to a rather radical form of physics maybe it's the passion of the convert but uh, in as much as, so we've talked about the representationalism, but there's also in this very, as you say, Australian uh, physicalism, the element of analytic functionalism, 
So for people who don't know the view that the property, say, of being a, pe being a pain is essentially defined in terms of what it does. So what all, all, all I mean, so just as by analogy, um, all we mean when we say a certain substance is poisonous is that it, uh, it kills you if you ingest it, sort of it's what it defined in terms of what it does. Similarly, for you, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, Frank, you correct me. Um, all we mean when we say a certain state is a pain is roughly that it causes us to scream and run away when our bodies are damaged and so on. What it does and what the causal profile. And this is maybe more of an, an assertion than an argument, but it, it just seemed to be, you know, just not a plausible view about what we mean uh, when we talk about pain. I mean, one wants to say, this is not quite the right thing to say, one wants to say, but it's not just what it does, it how, it's how it feels. And I know that's not quite the right thing to say because you're, like David Lewis said, you're going to say, okay, yeah, sure. You're just going to do the analysis again. Sure, to be in pain is about how you feel. But all we mean when we say someone feels pain is that they have this state that causes you to scream and run away when your body's damaged and so on. And I just, I do feel that it's just not really plausible that that's what we mean. I, I really do feel that philosophers in the future will look back and think, just sort of be baffled that. That, that that we entertain the idea that that's what we mean by the word pain. It just seems like it's it, it's just whatever we think metaphysically. This is a claim about what we mean by words, and it it's it sort of for me at least doesn't ring true. Or what is it? What do you think? Have I understood you correctly? And is is there any way you can make that more intuitive um, to me? Well, it, it's tricky because of course we're moving from the metaphysics to the philosophy of language part of the story. Um, uh, let me just give a tick to mention the philosophy of language. Uh, a lot of current physicalists um, are very much against conceptual analysis. So they say, why are we doing conceptual analysis? I don't know what I say, mental states or brain states and nice forceful tone of voice and let's move on to something else. And uh, they might say, it's like water is H2O. That's true, and don't fuss me about the analysis of the word water or stuff like that. Okay, they may even talk about direct reference and the causal theory of reference. Um, you, you, you've no doubt heard this on earlier sessions of Mind Chat. Uh, first thing I want to do is give a tick for conceptual analysis, because of course we do report our mental states in words, and it does seem reasonable, whether you're a physicalist or not to have a conversation about what claims people are making, about how things are when they use the language of psychology. It seemed very strange to say, I'm not going to discuss that topic. <laughs> um, so, of course, we, we should be, be talking about that. Um, and as you say, Australian materialism in its early versions um, was very much tied into a story about what you're saying when you report. Jack Smart's famous early paper had a bit on what's going on a rather implausible bit, I have to say, and I think Jack would agree later in his career it was pretty implausible. Uh, story about what you're saying. So, so I'm agreeing that's a topic we have to have a discussion about. The complication in the case of language, of course, is that language is something we learn and enter agreements to use words in certain ways. 
and take color vocabulary just to start with, uh, when we learn the words for colors, of course, we don't look into each other's minds and see how ready something looks to Keith when Keith and I both agree to use the word red or when we're kids at home and mum and dad tell us red's the word to use when they point to a ripe tomato, they're not looking into our minds. They're just pointing at a ripe tomato. <laughs> and we learn. So when we learn the language, uh, basically we have to learn it from publicly available cues, plus plausible hypotheses about the states that underline those underline those cues. So that what inspired the Australian materialists, and I think broadly this is right, um, when you think about how you learn the language of pain, you basically learn it not too much by introspection, but by seeing people becoming damaged and responding in various ways. And of course, you respond in the same way yourself. So the philosophy of language of psychology may well be a bit different from the metaphysics of the mind when you sit back and say, okay, I've got all these words, I've got to give a story about what they say, what they mean, but maybe behind them is something more. So I think Philip's partly pointing towards that. So as a theory about the meaning of the word pain, I think sort of functional story is quite plausible. You may say, well, I think that when I'm actually in pain, there's something more going on. And that's when you start sounding like Keith and me being a bit illusionist, you might say, well, the, when you think about it, what really goes on when you're in pain? Now, of course, I'm lucky enough that I've only really been in pain, but I have had a, a, one root canal done, which actually wasn't that bad. But I try and remember what it was like, and it's slightly elusive. I don't know if you see, what's the pain? The painfulness, in my case, seemed entirely a matter of having a fairly strong desire that it stopped. Uh, and it was what we might call an interested desire it stops. In other words, I wasn't desiring it stopped for some other reason, like that I was late for an appointment. So this should stop now so I can get to that appointment. I actually wanted the thing itself to stop. But what exactly was it? Well, something in the tooth, something in there somewhere, but I just wanted to stop. Uh, and of course, many people have said it's actually rather hard to describe pains. Of course, you describe them in location terms, but no one really thinks these days, they did once, but no one really thinks days the pains are actually there in the tooth or if you stub your toe, no one thinks if you look carefully at the toe, you'd find a pain. But somehow it's awfully much in the toe. So what's going on? Well, you want it to stop and you've got a state that represents that the trouble's in the toe, and remember it's doing it transparently. It's saying, it's in the toe, it's in the toe all the time. It's urging the toeness on you, and you reach for the toe. But when you put all that stuff together, the idea is that's it. And maybe there's a sense that there's more, but the more, now I'm looking at Keith, that's the illusory bit. <laughs> there actually is nothing more. That, that That's the idea. So. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to tell in that story about, about about, about what's happening in you and your, what you're yeah. the action. It's not just, I mean, it's easy to caricature the functions for you as it, it's a state that makes you scream and wander on that way. But it, it, there's, there's an awful lot of reactions in, happening inside yeah. here and in the body. I mean, I, I suffer from migraines. When I'm having a migraine, all sorts of weird kind of reactions are happening in me, I, I which I cannot describe. I, yeah. 
sometimes the, the pain doesn't even seem to be in my body. I sometimes I don't. I think my body seems to be split. Uh, sometimes it seems as pain is in the floor. I, I, I'm physically in all kinds of <laughs> twisted around in various ways that I can't explain. Pain is, you know, if you say how I say I'm in pain, but trying to unpack that, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't begin to do it. I mean, okay, let, let me, I'll have one more go at this and then I'll move on to my final part. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to say something about panpsychism. That's going to be the final point. But just let me have one more go at this. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, look, I, I agree with you uh, that, you know, the conceptual analysis is very important here. And I suppose this is where, where maybe all three of us differ from the more standard these days physicalist view, non-Australian physicalism that sort of says, oh, that doesn't matter, conceptual analysis. It's, mm. We just give an identity and that's the end of it. And I think we, we both agree. And, you know, one reason it's important is because we don't want the illusion to be too huge. We, we want to be able to say people feel pain. Uh, you know, Keith, Keith, I got Keith wrong in my book saying he felt no, he thought no one felt pain. Uh, Francis Kammer, who we had on last uh, earlier this week, was it last week? Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, gets close to that, but we want to say, I take it that. Uh, you know, people feel pain. So then we have to ask, well, what does it mean when we say that people feel pain? Now you've moved there, Frank, to well, is it much more than the f the desire that, and maybe not, maybe it's, you know, I mean, you do hear about the, that you can take a certain kind of anesthetic that doesn't make the pain go away, but makes you stop not liking it. But just maybe we can simplify by just focusing on that, that felt desire for it to go away, that conscious, ah! I think still when we, even when we're thinking about that, or what what we mean when we ascribe that to someone, when we ascribe someone, they're feeling that oh, that conscious desire for it to go away. I think even given a behaviorist, a, a functionalist analysis of that, that it's, well, what we mean is they have some kind of state that does this and does that. And I, I take Keith's point that it's going to be very complicated. But even so, I think it just seems really implausible that that's what we mean. And if that's not what we mean, and all you've got is functional goings on, basically, then you're saying no one feels pain, and and that's a, obviously a, a bridge too far. Anyway, that's that's how I think about it. I, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree, Philip. <laughs> it does I, happen in philosophy. <laughs> I, I think Philip does a really good job of articulating this intuition, and I think the intuition is real and powerful, as indeed the knowledge argument does, and it's real and powerful. And it tells us something very interesting and important about the about about consciousness about perception about how it works and I think uncovering uh, uh, understanding the nature of that intuition and why we have it I think it's a, that's well, the really interesting I mean, story. If it was just an intuition that floated free but if it ends up revealing what we mean when we say someone's in pain such that well, physicalism entails that no one feels pain then that's that's well, anyway but well, well, let, I mean, let, me, yeah. let me have my last my, I, 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 I'll I wanted to say something about representation as well, but I think I've said no. just coming on to panpsychism. I guess, I mean, it's just all, all of this, Frank. It's just so unnecessary, right? Because there is a view that you can have your cake and eat. It solves all these problems. You you said yourself, you know, that the reason you turn your back on the knowledge mm. argument sounds a bit strong maybe, um, was because of this worry about epiphenomenalism, right? That there's nothing left for consciousness to do. But that's only a worry if you think 
consciousness is sort of separate from the physical world. Whereas if you think the physical world is made up of consciousness and um, matter just is what consciousness does, then you can accept, you know, that the physical world is causally closed, if you like, in the way science seems to be pointing towards. I'm not sure I agree with that as you flagged up, but let's go along with it. And you can accept the knowledge argument and you don't have to take these roots that I've tried to suggest are a little bit counterintuitive. I don't think we can make sense of Mary's curiosity being satisfied. Uh, a big change, yeah, but not her curiosity being satisfied. I think we end up having to give these really funny analyses of what it is to feel pain when you can just have your cake and eat it. You can uh, be a panpsychist. Solves all the problems. What's wrong with that? Well, uh, <laughs> here's what I think is, is just fine. I think it's just fine to think that there's a lot about our world that the physical sciences don't reveal. Um, after all, we're the product of evolution. So why should we evolve to find out about all the properties? We evolved to find out about the properties that matter for survival. So that leaves plenty of scope for properties we don't know about. Uh, there's also the general point that if two properties, P and Q, have exactly the same functional profile, it'll be awfully hard to pick P from Q. Uh, measuring instruments will respond just the same way to instances of P as they do to instances of Q, for example. So there's the thought that Russell thought, actually, it goes back to Burton Russell, that there may be intrinsic properties of nature which escape all our physical measuring things. So there might be lots more than, uh, than I thought about. So in that sense, you might say, I'm not a physicalist about the world at large. The problem is to see how these extra properties, which I think it's perfectly sensible to believe in, have anything particularly to do with the, the mind. Um, one way of expressing the worry is to say, suppose you believe in all the extra properties. It'd sort of be funny to tell astronomers in your universities that they couldn't explain why the moon goes around this, the Earth because there's all these properties they don't know about. <laughs> that, that would be obviously a wrong way to go. You'd say, there's nothing wrong with your explanations of why the moon goes around the Earth and the solar system and all that stuff. Of course, there are all these properties you haven't mentioned they don't actually matter as far as, okay. Now, if you have a view about the mind, which thinks of the mind as evolving, the whole point of the mind really is to handle the problems thrown up by the world. And consciousness, if you're a kind representationist that I am, consciousness is part of that exercise. Because remember the example of the knees under the desk. It's a good thing to believe the knees are bent, it's also a good thing to be aware you believe that. Suppose someone poses a big prize for reporting accurately how your knees are. You'll win that prize if you write down my knees are bent. But you can hardly write down my knees are bent if you're not aware that your knees are bent. And again, think of the example of the optometrist. The phenomenology is very much closely linked to your performance. So there's a connection. This is pretty hand wavy, but there's this close connection between consciousness and the causal role of mental, mental states. So we've got, so 
I find it hard to believe, I'm quite happy to believe in extra properties. I find it hard to believe that they've got essentially anything to do with, with, with consciousness. Um, but just to, just to make a reference to literature, you know, that, know Daniel Soldier, colleague of mine at the ANU. His view, of course, he's not a panpsychist, but his view is that these extra properties may be the key to solving some of these big challenges. But he's not a panpsychist. The properties aren't essentially linked to the mind, but they're the extra ingredient we know. Now, I, I don't belong to that school. Uh, as my little story about the, the moon and the earth, no doubt, reveals to you. But that, that's a certainly interesting position out there, uh, which, which needs to be taken seriously. I give up. Not going to persuade you, am I? I had a good go. No, seriously, that was no. That is a really interesting response, actually. And actually, I mean, Daniel um, review reviewed my academic book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, for Notre Dame uh, reviews. And yeah, I mean, he made essentially this point and said, "It's a nice general view, but why be a panpsychist? We don't know what the hell is going on down there. Just say we don't know. You're uh, overshooting." by saying, you know, we know what's going on. But yeah, that is, that is an interesting response. I'll have to think about it a little more. Thank you. Um, do we have time, Frank, for a couple of a couple of audience questions? Yeah, sure. Fine. Um, if people want to put a cue in the in the chat and, and raise a question, actually, it's, it's probably a few seconds delay, so we'll um, have to, to wait a little while for those to come up. Um, there's a couple yeah. coming through already, I think. All right. Um, question from Anna Katharina Strasse. Uh, just because there's Q for me now. You're on there's YouTube. a couple before that. Um. Oh, sorry. A uh, question from A. Raybold. There are parallels to Mary's story. For example, one substituting completed panpsychism for physics. Is it reasonable to see the original as significant without giving the others similar weight? Oh, I see. So there's, well, this is a sort of panpsychism doesn't help kind of thing, I suppose, because we could just tell all this. I think uh, Eugen Nagasawa maybe told a story like kind of like this. So even if, I mean, you could maybe tell it with Daniel Stoljar's view as well, even if there are these funny properties we don't know about or consciousness properties we we can imagine a bit more maybe like I think if Mary knew all them, she still wouldn't know what it's like to see red. And so we get nowhere. What do you think about that, Frank? Is that, is that a good way of responding to the? Well, here's what's true. The easy thing to say, um, knowing about the properties is not the same as having the recognitional capacity. Um, go and go back to the face blindness example. Uh, I might read a brilliant account of exactly what properties of the face underlying the ability to recognize faces, that wouldn't cure me of face blindness. Be interesting to read, but I'd still be face blind. Yeah. Yeah, so, I guess also it's not, it's just not so, sorry, Keith, it's just not so obvious to me that the Mary intuition seems less strong in that case. Maybe if she knew, she knew all these micro consciousness properties, maybe it, you would be able to deduce um, what it's like to see, but anyway, sorry. I, know, I, think, there's, there's, I think there's scope there for reviving the, the, the knowledge argument in exactly that form uh, to illustrate that the uh, the only possible response to it is to adopt some form of representationalism. Um, that it would work equally well against all the views that it was originally supposed to support, hmm. because even if you had all the knowledge about all the qualia and so on, you still wouldn't be able to 
to uh, you would still wouldn't have these recognition. But you'd still be surprised when you actually got out there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, question from Luke. Uh, does Dr. Jackson have any thoughts on the meta problem of consciousness? Does his representational account need to be supplemented with an, un- with a, an uh, with a representationist account of the hard problem? Interesting question. Are you familiar with this stuff? For the, the- um, yes, I'm actually wondering about the surname behind Luke, and I'm having a wild guess as to what the surname might be, but anyway. Oh, uh, right. that's, that, that's an excellent question. <laughs> Perhaps it's partly because it's an excellent question. I'll have a speculation as to what the surname <laughs> might be. Um, yes, uh, the, the short answer is yes. You, you, you need a representationalist answer to the hard problem. Um, what you have to say is we're in states that represent that things are thus and so. We're also in states that represent that we represent that things are thus and so. And the survival value of both kinds of states is obvious. Um, the, the phenomenology, in my opinion, comes from the second part of the story, the bit where you represent how you're representing things to be. Because I said earlier, it's not the standard higher order theory which thinks of consciousness as being consciousness of mental states. It's actually consciousness of what your mental states are saying. So the phenomenology of perceptual experience is an awareness of what your perceptual experience is saying about how things are. I actually think that most perceptual experience is unconscious. When I play tennis, I have lots of perceptual experiences. Most of them are unconscious, but they guide me around the court. If I don't have the perceptual experiences, I'd lose even more badly, as I sometimes do. It would be a disaster. Um, so I have to have those guiding states. But also, every so often, I'm aware of what they are. That is what they're representing. That's, that, that's the conscious bit. So the consciousness comes from a higher order representation. So that, that, that's why that's exactly the right question to ask. Uh, Anna Katharina Strasser, uh, what about knowledge how and knowledge that? Would you argue for the reducibility by claiming that the amount of knowledge does not become less, only fewer skills are available? Look, I'm not sure what to say about the distinction between knowledge how and knowledge that. Um, I do know we have abilities, as Lewis and Nemo reminded us. Um, as the experienced customers will know, Stanley and Williamson have argued, and other people, that knowledge how is actually a kind of knowledge that. So when people say, how do you draw the distinction? What I tend to say is, let's forget about all the complexities. Let's distinguish what you can achieve by reading text and listening to words versus the other stuff. And you could learn a lot by reading text listening to words. In fact, that's what happens in there in the black and white room. You will not learn how to ride a bike. (laughs) So even if you think knowing how to ride a bike is really propositional knowledge in some sense, so that the familiar example used to illustrate the Lewis Nemo response rests on a mistake, namely that knowledge how is not different. Knowledge how is different knowledge that. Even if that's a mistake, there's a very important distinction between what you can learn from words and written and audible 
and what you can't. And riding a bike um, and recognizing faces, these are all things you cannot learn by reading lots of words. Um, question here from Pujasani. How close is the knowledge argument to the mind-body problem? Well, very close is the short answer. <laughs> Uh, the knowledge argument is the way of bringing out the the challenge of physicalism. Because remember when people like Smart and Armstrong and Lewis and Feigl, that comes from that, first said that mental states are brain states, there were plenty of people who said, of course you're right. But the brain states have got special extra properties. Let me tell you what they are. They're called qualia. They were, in a sense, mind-brain identity theorists, but they're also extra property theorists. And Armstrong and Smart and Lewis both want to say, that's not our view. <laughs> that's a travesty. Um, now, it's the knowledge argument was directed at that particular part of the... They were saying, yes, you've got to be a dual attribute theory. That was, in fact... In fact, of course, the zombie argument or the imitation man argument, the one that Keith Campbell and David Chalmers and other people have pushed... That's an argument for the same basic, the purpose is the same. Yes, maybe mental states are brain states, but they've got extra properties. So that's the bearing of a knowledge argument. It's on that extra properties issue rather than on the issues where the mental states are brain states. Okay, there are a lot more questions, but maybe we can just fit in one more going in order. Katka Slutova was next. Will Mary have the similar experiences as the blind woman who... who uh, for the first time, saw the world. Would there be a difference if you're totally blind rather than just not seeing oh. colours? The short answer is no. And that's a point about neurophysiology. The, the, the reality is that the blind woman, in fact, Keith was talking about this sort of example earlier, um, it won't be like our experiences at all. Um, in fact, as Keith reminded us, uh, at least in one case, it was a very disturbing, upsetting experience, which the person very much wanted to stop having. Um, but, of course, we're being philosophers. We're allowed to have thought experiments. And outlandish thought experiments you can't understand, you can rightly um, be suspicious of. But I do think the Mary thought experiment is perfectly understandable. <laughs> so we're allowed to say... We're going to pretend that what happens to Mary is what happens to you and me. Uh, well, what, actually, what's happening to you and me right now, as, I look, as we look around, we can suppose that that's what happens when she leaves the room. And people who say, perhaps with some neurophysiological support, that it won't be like that, that is sort of an interesting observation. But my opinion, um, to some degree of controversy, uh, it's an interesting observation which is philosophically irrelevant. Yeah, that's what um, Patricia Churchton says in a Royal Institute of Philosophy I know, I know, talk. I know. On uh, uh, we we we've clashed a little bit on 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 Twitter, me and Patricia, on this topic. <laughs> and there was a there was a an article in the Irish Times written up about it. Actually, our, our yeah. Twitter clash, and they got um they got a local a local philosopher from Dublin to comment on it, who turned out to be a dualist and said we were both wrong. Anyway, um, yeah, I sometimes wonder whether the whether the knowledge argument. Has to, has to be as far-fetched as, as, as it is in another respect. I mean, Keith said before about how she knows, you know, all the 86 billion neurons mm. and what they do and so on. But does it need to be that? I mean, presumably the final neuroscientific theory of um, 
color experience is going to be fairly high level. It's not going to be talking about quantum mechanics. So maybe we could just say she knows that without needing to know, you know, what all well, the quarks are doing. It's pretty so complicated in itself. Uh, look, I think that, that that's right. But I think what um, animates Patricia Churchland is the thought that um, it would be such a shock when she left the room. Mm-hmm. But actually, mm-hmm. she wouldn't see colours. Right. I think I think that's what's worrying her. Um, and I, it, it's a bit. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist. I mean, this may be true, but of course, it may not be true. Um, it's not like I mean, actually, mm-hmm. the, the question has been asked. It's not like going from being blind to having vision. Mm-hmm. It's like going from a late night Hollywood movie on TV, black and white, to a coloured movie. Uh, and how much of a shock that would be! It's really a question for the neuroscientists. But Pache, what Churchland says, I do think it's philosophically I- I- irrelevant to the, um, I, to the... I wonder if, 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 if in defence of, of, um, of Patricia's point there, is it, is it, isn't the point not so much to question uh, the soundness of this as a, as a thought experiment, but as to question our intuitions that it generates and maybe the thought that... It, that, that um, that the way we respond to the thought experiment is shaped by an overly simplistic understanding of the of, of, of the, the yeah, neurophysiology. That, 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 that may be a worry. Um, I think she's so opposed to the argument that I'm not always quite certain exactly which of the many things she thinks are wrong with it. I think uh, she's impatient with, 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 with armchair theorizing about the brain, um, and um, she, she, she may well be right to, to me. Uh, Yes, but see, but this tiny point about that, I mean, the story I told about what happens in the optometrist office mm-hmm. is armchair mm-hmm. philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, mm-hmm. but you all knew exactly what point to draw from that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the fact that I was able to make the point by sitting in an armchair. But uh, it's, it's so. interesting, though, that, that I mean, David Chalmers uses exactly that sort of example um, uh, to, um, to uh, right at the beginning of um, The Conscious Mind, he uses the example of, I think, uh, the first time he wore spectacles and so uh, yeah. I was thinking of depth perception that they hear spectacles which corrected his depth perception and suddenly and this is to try and evoke precisely this this intuition of something <laughs> ineffable but very potent and real that can't be accounted for yeah. uh, so it, it even with you know, we have a lot of intuitions and we share these intuitions but exactly what they how we how we should respond to those intuitions um, oh, uh, a, a, absolutely. Self-interpreting, well, one, you, you I might, think. Exactly. Point. You might rightly be suspicious of how you respond to various intuitions. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm pushing back against is the idea that you shouldn't pay any attention to the intuitions at all. No, that's no, no, armchair no, no, philosophy. I think yeah, they're terribly important. I think that's one yeah. wonderful thing that the knowledge argument does, is it, is it draws out this powerful intuition yeah. and we need to explain yeah. it. And that's yeah. terrific. I'm a big fan of armchairs. <laughs> right. Well, we've been talking nearly two hours. Thank you. That is, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Absolutely. I've learned some stuff. I didn't succeed in persuading you, but it's always going to be there's, a always ne- there's always next time. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for taking the time to spend Absolutely. a couple of hours chatting to us. I'm very honoured. Oh, a pleasure, Philip. Pleasure, Keith. Thank you very much for setting it up. Thank uh, you, sir. Take, and, take care, as they say. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's there's been a lot of disagreement, 
I was going to say Keith's doing his normal thing of of trying to say everyone agrees with him, but I think in this case that it's it's maybe there is quite a close closest there, but a lot of disagreement. But actually, I think it turns out we there is at least one point we all agree on. I think we all agree that consciousness is wherever it is and nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs>